The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. This is the record that God has given to us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on Him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing, is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of Him, and through Him, and to Him are all things, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Before we begin our study of God's Word, let's... Go to the Lord in prayer and ask His guidance and direction on our study. Father, we do thank You for Your Word, that You have revealed to us everything we need for life and godliness, and it is in Your Word that we have the magnificent promises by which we grow and advance in our spiritual life. Father, from Genesis 1 through Revelation 22, Your desire to have a relationship with the human race that you have created in your image and likeness is, stands out on every page. From the time of Adam's fall through the time of the ultimate redemption of the universe, there is the continued initiative that you exercise in grace toward fallen mankind. And Father, you have in your plan deemed that this would work itself out through the use of intermediate human agents and from the use of Israel in the Old Testament to the church in the New Testament, you continue to work out your plan of salvation by giving us the privilege and the honor of participating in that evangelistic enterprise. Now, Father, as we continue our study this morning, we pray that you challenge us with our own involvement and responsibility when we face the mandates related to missions in the scripture. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. One of the first things I learned when I was in ROTC in college was the ten uh, principles of warfare. Those of you in the military remember those. You probably have some acronym that you use to remember that. But the very first principle of war was objective. And you must clearly define your objective or you don't know what you're doing. And if you don't know what your target is, you're probably not going to hit it. And there is a mission, an objective that is clearly stated in the Scriptures for the church. But that, that mission, that objective, while it is clearly defined in the New Testament, didn't begin in the New Testament, which is what a lot of people think. They think that the, the mission that Jesus gave to his disciples as usually uh, articulated in Matthew 28, 19, and 20, called the Great Commission, does not really begin in Matthew 28. This is just the 
church age version of a mission that began back in Genesis chapter 3. There's a twin objective in the church age for every believer and thus for every local congregation. And that's expressed by two E's, evangelism and edification. It is through the evangelistic efforts of individual believers that God has chosen to bring unbelievers to a knowledge of who Jesus Christ is and what he did on the cross. It's not going to happen apart from the use of human beings to do that. And that's just one of the great privileges that we have is that that God can use us to explain the gospel to those who are lost, those who are confused, those who are searching, so that they can hear the truth, that they can be saved by faith alone in Christ alone, that they can be freed from the shackles of religion, they can be freed from the servitude of sin, and that only comes by putting our faith alone in Christ alone. And that is accomplished through every believer. It's not accomplished through you know, somebody else or this organization or that organization. It comes right down to every single individual believer. And we can be involved in that aspect, that of evangelism, either directly or indirectly. We can be involved directly because it's our responsibility to communicate the gospel to whomever is around us, to whomever God gives us the opportunity, whether it's co-workers, whether it's family, whether it's friends, acquaintances, just maybe uh, somebody we run into uh, coincidentally in life. We may sit down with them in a waiting room in a doctor's office, or it may be a situation where it's just uh, somebody we meet or somebody, one we're in, someone we're introduced to. We never know who it will be or what the circumstances will be. Sometimes, as uh, my friend Gene Brown likes to point out, we just have these glitches in our plans, and all of a sudden we're thrown into a different set of circumstances than what we expected. And we're always so self-absorbed that we start getting irritated and put out because all of a sudden this has happened instead of what we expected. And we never think, or we ought to stop and think, that perhaps this is the sovereign plan of God for us to use this opportunity to talk to this individual and to present the gospel to them. So as individual believers, we have a responsibility to be directly involved in Evangelism. That means we have to be trained. We have to keep that in the forefront of our mind as part of the reason we're saved. God didn't save you just so you could sit around in heaven and enjoy fellowship with him uh, throughout all of eternity. We are saved for a purpose, and part of that purpose is evangelism, personal evangelism directly, but also indirectly. We do that through missionaries. I pointed this out last Sunday morning as we began our study or continued our study of this sixth letter to the sixth church in uh, Revelation 3 to the angel of the church in Philadelphia. Write these things, says he who is holy, he who is true, uh, he who has the key of David, he who opens and no one shuts and shuts and no one opens. And so in the very introduction to this letter, there's this emphasis on the person of Jesus Christ as the Messiah. He has the keys of David. There's this emphasis on the exclusivity of his work, that it is only by faith in Jesus Christ that we have salvation. He said, I am the way, 
the truth and the life. No one can come to the Father except by me. And so there is embedded in this introduction this emphasis on the person of Jesus Christ, the exclusivity of his work, and that he is the one who opens and no one shuts and shuts and no one opens. And this imagery of an open door was then picked up in the next verse where he says to this church, I know your works, and then he interrupts. Unlike any of these other uh, evaluation reports that we've studied, he interrupts right in the middle of this, of listing their uh, positive attributes. He interrupts with this phrase, See, I have set before you an open door, and no one can shut it. And I uh, diagrammed it this way on the screen so that you could see that this, this parenthetical thought is just inserted. And we began looking at this last time, that this phrase, uh, Given before you an open door is a literal translation, and it indicates opportunity. And it is used that way. We studied several uh, uses of this uh, idiom in the New Testament that giving someone an open door, providing an open door, is providing opportunity for evangelism, opportunity for ministry, opportunity to communicate the Word of God. And so the sixth church here in Revelation is often referred to as a mission, missionary church because they, there's this emphasis on that first objective, which is evangelism. The second objective, of course, is edification, and that is the training of the members of the body of Christ to do the work of ministry, Ephesians 4, 11, and 12, that the gifts of pastor, teacher, and evangelist are given to the church for the purpose of equipping them, that is, equipping you, to do the work of the ministry. So that the gift of pastor-teacher, the gift of evangelist, is designed to train, to equip, to prepare the individual believer in the pew to go out and uh, make an impact on the culture and the world around, around us, to communicate the gospel. And as I've pointed out a couple of times recently, as I've had some opportunities thrown my way to communicate the gospel, especially one in particular that happened about a month ago where I had a chance encounter with a Muslim. And as we went through our conversation and I tried to avail myself of the opportunity to witness to him, I thought more and more about how would I respond to this individual and how would I communicate the gospel to this Muslim if I didn't have all the training I have as a pastor, if I was just the average person sitting in the pew in my congregation, have I given them the resources, the training, the knowledge, the information that they need so that they can properly communicate the gospel to a Muslim that they run into, a Hindu next-door neighbor, a Mormon that they uh, work with? Are you prepared to do that? And, and if you think about what happens in the average evangelical conservative church in America, the answer to that is usually no. It hasn't happened. And if you ever get the opportunity to sit down with, with a Jehovah's Witness or a Mormon or Muslim or just some well-trained secular atheist who has built his life on evolutionary and postmodern presuppositions, you will immediately realize that they have been trained one place or another to respond to whatever you say with a canned response. 
And if you say start to talk about sin, then they're going to go in this direction. If you challenge uh, their translation of the Scriptures or their view of God, then they know that's coming. But we don't train our people that way. We, we teach the Word and we teach principles, but you don't go through these intensive classes of training that they often run into. The other day I received a phone call from a young man who was in my congregation some almost 30, 20 years ago, 25 years ago now, my first church. He was just in college at the time, and later on he, I think he took some classes at Dallas Seminary, and he's now in... Uh, has his own business in Arizona. And he was telling me about the difficulty he had interacting with a Jehovah's Witness that came by and knocked on his door recently. And he said they are so well trained in how to proselytize that even with the background iPad, how difficult I found it to deal with the questions and issues that they were raising. And that's just a part of training. We need to have, that's part of edification. It's not just a matter of learning the scriptures related to our own spiritual life and spiritual growth, which is very important, but it's also to be equipped to think, to interact, to present the gospel. It's not just a matter of presenting the gospel, pulling out our gospel gun and shooting somebody with the gospel. Uh, we have to engage them in relationships. Often we have to spend time uh, with somebody and answer their questions. It's not Everybody's different. There's no set... Uh, circumstance or situation for dealing with people because every person is different. Every circumstance is different. Some people come with to, to an evangelistic situation where they've heard the gospel maybe three or four different times and they've already been uh, seeking and they've heard answers and you sit down with them and give them the gospel and they respond immediately and trust the Lord. Then the next time you talk to somebody, it may be the very first time they've ever heard a biblical expression of the gospel and the importance of salvation, and they've just got all kinds of questions. They may even be hostile or appear to be hostile at the beginning. But it takes time and it takes patience to talk to them and to answer questions, and and you may just have 15 or 20 minutes and you're just planting a seed, and somebody else will come along after you and take it to, to another level. But that's how, how it works. So we have, in terms of evangelism, we have uh, direct opportunities and indirect opportunities through missions and missionaries as well as training. Now, I want to go through the biblical basis for missions this week because that's what we're talking about. Another term that has come into popularity in the last oh, 50 years or so related to missions is world evangelization. Because in essence, that is what missions is. It is world evangelization. It is taking the gospel not just to the person who lives next door to us, but it's taking the gospel to other cultures, to other countries, to other nations. And it's not just a matter of helping them understand how to be saved, but in many cases it is teaching them the entire counsel of God with the end result in mind that they are going to be able to establish indigenous churches, indigenous congregations in their, in their nations with their own uh, native uh, pastors who are trained and grown up in that particular culture. 
Gordon Olson, who has written a very uh, helpful book on missions, defines missions as the whole task, endeavor, and program of the Church of Jesus Christ to reach out across geographical and or cultural boundaries by sending missionaries to evangelize people who have never heard or who have little opportunity to hear the saving gospel. That's the essence of it. We need to train people. That means we need to have Bible colleges and seminaries and training institutes, and that's part of uh, of missions as well. You have missions that target, as I pointed out last time, subgroups within a culture, within a a nation, so you have different groups that target youth, that target uh, students on campus, that may target different uh, ethnic groups. We have a tremendous opportunity today in this nation for every believer to take the gospel to other cultures because if you just look at your neighborhood, it's probably not any different from my neighborhood, and you have Hispanics and you have Chinese and Koreans and you have uh, Arabs and all kinds of different people from different ethnic backgrounds, and that gives you an opportunity to get to know them and to be uh, a missionary at home. In conclusion, I pointed out that missions technically refers to a form of cross-cultural evangelism where designated individuals are set apart by a local church to carry out the work of communicating the gospel teaching the Word of God in the whole realm of Bible doctrine with the end result of creating a self-supporting indigenous ministry. That's the formal concept of missions. The informal concept, of course, is just what we do as part of our everyday life. Now, missions has been a part of the God's approach to mankind ever since the fall in the Garden of Eden. In essence, if you boil it all down, what evangelism and missions is all about is telling people about God. And in that rudimentary sense, that began with the very creation of man back in Genesis chapter 1. When God created man, he said in Genesis 1.26, "...let us make man in our image according to our likeness." And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and the other creatures. In Genesis 1.27 we're told, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God he created him male and female. He created them. Now there are a lot of different things that we can comment on in relation to these verses. But the one thing I want to point out is that God created man in his image. That means that the human race was created to have a relationship with God. They were created in such a way to be able to understand God and to be able to communicate with God. This set mankind apart from all of the other creatures. That when it comes to understanding what separates man from all the other creatures, it is this aspect called the imago dei, the image of God. Man is not an animal. That's what evolution teaches, that you're just another animal in the whole chain of being. While we may have certain similarities in physical life with animals, what sets man apart is that we are created in the image of God and designed to have a relationship with Him. And in the Garden of Eden, God took the initiative 
to develop that relationship with man because in order to have a relationship with God, you have to know about God. You have to know who He is. You have to understand His character. You have to understand His attributes. You have to understand His plan and purposes for man. Man can't understand who He is without reference to God. If you're created in the image and likeness of God, then you can't know who you are without reference to who God is and that initial purpose. But as we all know, that pristine condition of perfection that uh, took place in the Garden of Eden fell apart when man sinned. They disobeyed God and ate from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But that's when missions began. That is when God took the initiative to communicate who He is and what His plan of salvation was from the very beginning. After Adam and Eve disobeyed him, it was God who appeared in the garden and began to look for them, calling out their name. They, of course, ran and hid. Nevertheless, God maintained the initiative, seeking them out. And then once he had exposed what the failure was and the consequences of that sin, he detailed that in the latter part of Genesis chapter 3. The key verse for our purposes, is in Genesis 3.15, which is called the Proto-Evangelium by theologians indicating the first gospel, the first mention, the proto-first mention of the gospel, that there would be good news. And in that, in addressing the serpent, God said, I will put enmity between you and the woman. This indicates that there would be a, a his, history-long battle between the human race and Satan, and that we would be in the midst of this battlefield. Therefore, utilizing military analogies is perfectly appropriate. There is an objective to take in the battle for the human race. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. And here's where we have that first hint of the victory that God is going to exercise over the, over the serpent. This isn't a dualism where there's this eternal battle between God and Satan. From the very beginning, the end has been set and has been determined that Satan would lose and be defeated. He shall bruise your head, indicating a fatal wound on the serpent. From, and the he there refers to the seed of the woman, which is the Lord Jesus Christ, fulfills this. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Though there would be a temporary wounding of the seed of the woman, which is what occurred at the cross, it would not be permanent. He would rise from the dead. There would be resurrection and victory over death, and in that would be the permanent defeat of the seed of the serpent. Well, as we go through those early chapters of Genesis, you see that God continues to exercise the initiative toward mankind. But mankind, in negative volition, rejects God again and again and again until it culminates in this situation that we find in Genesis chapter 6 where the heart of man did evil continually and God decided it was time to judge the human race. Part of that was because of the intrusion of the uh, uh, demons, the sons of God, in Genesis chapter 6 verse 3. But what made that possible was because the human race as a whole had rejected 
rejected God. And so God, once again, in grace, is going to exercise initiative to, to reach out to the human race. And for 120 years, Noah proclaims the gospel. He is called a preacher of righteousness. And so, and for 120 years, he's, he is proclaiming the gospel. He and his sons are witnessing to the entire human race, which consisted of probably three or four billion people at that time, if you do the math, realizing that 10 to 12 generations overlapped during those uh, ages. They lived to be 900 years, so there were a, was a vast number of people on the earth, and yet it was only Noah, his three sons, and their wives who responded positively to the gospel. Uh, that is uh, not a mark of a great success by human standards. We want to measure things in terms of numbers and uh, and quantify them, but the according to God's standard, what makes you successful is faithfulness to His plan and His will, not how many people you get saved, how large your church is, how many people respond. It is the faithfulness in communicating the message. And so for 120 years, God extends grace. And it wasn't just a year. He didn't just do it one time. He didn't do it two times. It wasn't just five years or ten years. It was 120 years. See, grace means going the extra mile, not just doing something once to, uh, in, for, for the benefit of somebody, but continuing to do that, to press on and persevere in communicating the gospel. And so Noah did that. But finally it reached a point where there was no response and judgment came. And that's the other part of the message is that there's always judgment on sin. And so all the human race is wiped out except for the eight who got on the ark. And then once again, God is going to reach out to mankind. They get off the ark. They offer sacrifices. God reestablishes his covenant with Noah. And he uh, redefines the terms of that covenant. And once again, they are to multiply and fill the earth. And as they, as they go forth, they don't do that. And there's a failure at the Tower of Babel. Because man is using his collective strength, all speaking the same language, to uh, ally themselves with one another against God. So God uh, decides anthropopathically, God decides to uh, solve the problem. And he, is, he decides it's better to have a divided human race that can't get together in mutual cooperation to uh, rebel against him and to promote apostasy and idolatry. And he divides the languages. Now we have an even further uh, barrier or problem to the communication of the gospel. Not only is there the problem of sin and the hardness of the human heart, but now there's the problem of language. There's the problem of cross-cultural communication because as languages develop, they, they communicate differently. And if you know anything about different cultures and different languages, because of the way uh, someone in one language group uh, expresses their views of reality, their views of creation, their views of God, their views of, of morality. Uh, it's different from the way it's expressed in another language group. Their logic is different, and logic is embedded within the very nature of language. So if you are uh, speaking, for example, in 
an Asian country that has, uh, with a with the language that has been developed and designed within the structure of of Buddhism or animism or spiritism, then the the basic lang- language and logic that's embedded there is going to have uh, some problems, some barriers for the communication of the absolute truth of the Word of God, and these are the kinds of difficult things that that missionaries have to deal with. It's a tremendous challenge, uh, even in cultures that have had some evidence or some witness of Christianity over the years and have a Bible in their language, often you run into the barriers of poor translations. I remember some years ago when we went to Kazakhstan with Jim Myers and we had a class, and this half of the class were Russian speakers, and this half of the class were Kazakh speakers. And we had two interpreters, and I would make a statement, utter a sentence, and then the Russian translator would translate, and then the Kazakh translator would translate. And I was teaching on the spiritual life, and so one of the first things we talked about was spirit baptism, the baptism by means of the Holy Spirit. But the Kazakh students there not only did not have an Old Testament at all in their language, They only had part of the New Testament in their language, and so some of the scriptures that I was trying to take them to, they didn't have in their language. What they did have in their language was the result of a Baptist missionary who had translated the the parts of the New Testament into the Kazakh language, but he had not translated it from the Greek. He had translated it from the English New International Version, which is already a poor translation in my opinion. So in their Bible, every time the word baptism appeared, they used the Kazakh word for washing. Now, when you try to explain a dry baptism like the baptism of the Holy Spirit, when what they have in their text is the washing of the Holy Spirit, then you open up a whole can of worms. Rather than communicating something in ten minutes, you end up having to spend a whole hour just trying to retranslate and make sure that the translator properly understands what you're saying so that they can communicate it into the language of the people. And that's another tremendous challenge that uh, missionaries face is not when, when you, it, it's, it's one thing to go into, uh, let's say, Bangkok or, or Hanoi or Beijing, someplace like that, and hire a translator. But does the translator understand what you're trying to say about the Bible when they don't understand the Bible? They may not be Christians. They may just be nominal Christians. They may have just a... uh, In many of these countries, the amount of biblical knowledge is so small and so tiny that even if they are advanced believers for their culture, they haven't been exposed to enough... A biblical teaching to really understand what you're saying, the nuances that are being communicated by the English speaker. That was one problem we also ran into in Almaty is uh, we'd hired a translator, a Russian man there, not a native Kazakh, he was translating to Russian, and he had translated for a number of other Christian groups. But we were talking about things like propitiation and redemption and reconciliation and he didn't, he'd never heard anybody talk about these things before. So we would, we would start teaching at what we would consider a, a basic level. And he wasn't even up to a basic level. He didn't have enough uh, English 
vocabulary because he had never heard American missionaries come over and use this vocabulary. I mean, that's part of the problems we face today in America is that we've dumbed everything down so much here in America that we are exporting our shallow, superficial uh, view of Christianity all over the world now. That's what we export in, as, as, uh, with our missionaries. And so you're producing mirror images in Africa, in India, in China, in Japan, and Russia, and you go to many of these uh, Russian churches, and they're singing 45 minutes of praise and worship music, and then they're hearing a 15-minute shallow, superficial sermonette, because that's what they've been taught by, by the wonderful missionaries that we produce in our evangelical church today. So it's a it's a tremendous challenge, and after the Tower of Babel, there was this additional hurdle of different cultures and different languages, all of which were, of course, the product of human viewpoint uh, cultures and people groups that were antagonistic to God. So God instituted a new plan, and that was to call out one individual, and through that one individual, he would bless all nations spiritually. So he's going to call out one particular group to be the missionary agency for that age. And that was through uh, one particular individual, Abraham and his descendants. And we've gone through the Abrahamic covenant many times, and we know that there's three elements in the Abrahamic covenant, and every one of you should be able to say that in your sleep, land, seed, and blessing. And it's that blessing category that we're talking about. God called out Abraham to be a worldwide Blessing. It wasn't just to elevate the Jews because they were such wonderful people, because throughout the Bible, God continuously reminds them that they're a stubborn and stiff-necked people. And he didn't call them out because there was something special about them, but because that was his plan and purpose to use them to reach the nations, the Gentiles. So in Genesis 12... Uh, Verse 2, we read, I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you. Verse 3, and I will curse him who curses you. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now, the missionary program that God had in mind in the Old Testament wasn't the same as in the New Testament. The New Testament were to go out, but in the Old Testament, the idea was that the people and the nations would be coming to Israel, and they would learn from the Jews in their own land, in their own country, about God's plan and purposes. And the Jews would stand as a, as a witness, both in terms of their culture and their life, as well as their message. This is uh, seen in Galatians 3.14, that the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus. So from the very inception... Even Paul recognizes and teaches in Galatians 3 that the purpose for calling Abraham was not just to focus on the Jews, but to use this one group to reach the rest of mankind. Uh, Exodus 19.3, we have the next stage in the development when the nation is brought forth from Egypt and they're going to be taken to the promised land and establish this, this new nation. 
And Moses went to God in Exodus chapter 19, verse 3, up on Mount Sinai. And God gives him instructions as to what he should tell the children of Israel and remind them of how he has just delivered them in verse 4. In verse 5 he says, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be a special treasure to me above all the all people, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And it is this one verse, Exodus 19.6, that gives us the, the view of who Israel is among all the nations. If you think about the nation Israel, by analogy, they were to have one tribe within the nation, the tribe of Levi, that would serve as the priestly tribe and uh, and it was through Levi that the people would be taught the law, and it is through the priests in the tribe of Levi that the people would be able to come to God. Well, just as Le- the tribe of Levi served in that priestly function to the nation, so the nation Israel is pictured as serving in that same function for all of the other nations, that it would be the nation Israel that would teach the other nations about God. It was the nation Israel that would bring the Gentiles and the nations around them to a knowledge of who God is. This is seen most clearly in the Psalms. When we look at the Psalms, there are a number of Psalms that have three elements in them. First of all, there are calls in numerous Psalms for all the nations to praise God. And the word there for nations is what we would call Gentiles. For all the goyim to praise God. Psalm after psalm emphasizes this, that all the nations, all the peoples would praise God. Second, there is an emphasis on calling the nations to proclaim the works of God, that they are to proclaim the works of God. Uh, psalm 9:11 is one of these verses. Sing praises to the Lord who dwells in Zion. Declare His deeds among the people. The Jews were to declare the works of God among all of the other nations. This is also seen in Psalm 105, verse 1. A third element that we see in many of the of the Psalms is that all of the nations are to sing praises to God. This is seen in Psalm 1849, Psalm 96, Psalm 57, 9, Psalm 108, verse 3. Let me just put a couple of these up, other ones up on the screen for you. Psalm 22:27. All the ends of the world shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nation shall worship before you. You see, the calling of the Jews didn't limit God to Israel. It was for a greater purpose of taking the gospel to all the nations. But it wasn't by sending the Jews out. It was by setting, as it were, a nation who would, whose light, because of their obedience to the Lord, would illuminate the world. Psalm 46.10 Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. Psalm 96, uh, verses 2 and 3. Sing to the Lord, bless His name. Proclaim the what? The gospel, the good news of His salvation from day to day. Declare His glory among the nations, His wonders among all the peoples. Another psalm, uh, an entire psalm, Psalm 67, 
focuses on the Jews' responsibility, the responsibility of Israel to take the gospel to the nations. Psalm 61, 1 and uh, 1 through 3 emphasizes the responsibility of Israel to let the entire earth know the knowledge of God. And Psalm 61, 1 we read, uh, God be merciful to us and bless us and cause his face to shine upon us. Now many of you have heard that verse before. But that verse is in the context of the next two verses. Let your let its face shine upon us that for the purpose of your way that your way may be known on earth, your salvation among the nations. They were to cry out for God's blessing on them for the purpose that God's ways would be known and declared among all the nations. Verse 3, let the peoples, that is the nations, the Gentiles, praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Psalm 67, uh, verses 4 and 5. The psalmist goes on to say that because God is the creator judge, all peoples should praise him. He says, O let the nations be glad and sing for joy. For you, that is for you, God, shall judge the people righteously. And govern the nations on earth. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. And then the last two verses, we see the thought that God will be known throughout the earth because of his blessing to Israel. Then the earth shall yield her increase. God, our own God, shall bless us. God shall bless us, and all the ends of the earth shall fear him. Because of the way God would bless Israel, all the nations would know about God and would come to fear Him. So that was God's missionary program in the Old Testament. We see it in 1 Kings 8, 59 and 60. Just look at verse 60. That all the peoples of the earth may know that the Lord is God. There is no other. In the prophets Isaiah... Uh, in that day, Isaiah 11:10 and 12, in that day the nations will resort to the root of Jesse, who will stand as a signal for who? For the Jews? No, for the peoples. And his resting place will be glorious, and he will lift up a standard for the nations and assemble the banished ones of Israel and will gather the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. This is looking forward to the future millennial kingdom. But the emphasis here is that throughout the Old Testament, God is focused not just on Israel, but on salvation of all peoples. This is, uh, of course, not fulfilled until the millennial kingdom. Then when we come to the New Testament, we see that this continues in, a, in the same way, but a slightly different version. Before everyone was to come to Israel to learn about God, now church-age believers are sent out. John 20, 21, Jesus addresses the disciples and says, Peace be with you, as the Father has sent me, so also I send you. This is the uh, part of that commission. Every gospel expresses the mission that God sent the disciples on in slightly different ways. Mark 16, 14, and 15, this is after the resurrection. Afterward, he appeared to the eleven themselves as they were reclining at the table And he reproached them for their unbelief and hardness of heart, because they had not believed those who had seen him after he had risen. And he said to them, Go into all the world and preach, that is to proclaim the gospel to all 
creation. So the the disciples, after the crucifixion, had just fallen apart. They hadn't believed the reports about the resurrection because they really hadn't believed what Jesus had uh, prophesied about His own resurrection. But when the Lord appeared to them, He stated this mission. Your job is to take the gospel into all the world. Now, He's addressing the apostles, but this is true for and understood to be true for all believers beyond uh, the apostles. Luke twenty four forty seven and 48, that uh, they're to proclaim the repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in His name to who? All the nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. Then we look at Matthew 28, 18 through 20. Jesus came came up and spoke to them saying, this is a different setting. Each of these involves a slightly different setting. So again and again we see Jesus reiterating this mission to the disciples. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. This tells us that no matter what happens, what the opposition is, what the difficulty is, whatever uh, persecution may arise because we're going into a country or a culture that is hostile to the gospel, that Jesus Christ is in control, that He's the one who is in authority. And even if it means that we give our lives in the cause of the gospel, Jesus Christ is still in control. He is the one who has been given authority. He then says, and this is a mistranslation, it's not a command, go, therefore. There's not an imperative there. The word for go is the is a participial form, meaning when you're going, as you go, as you go forth and throughout life, you, uh, you are going. As you leave here, you're going to go. And the, that participle does pick up, as participles do in terms of grammar. It picks up an imperatival nuance that kind of bleeds over from the main verb. But the main imperative here isn't to go. The main imperative is to make disciples. And that word disciple means to make students of all the nations. And then he breaks it down into two categories. He says, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And that concept of baptism in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, as you go through the book of Acts, you see that this is exactly how the apostles understood that. And uh, in, in Acts, chapter, uh, Acts chapter 5 with the Ethiopian eunuch, as soon as he's saved, uh, Philip says to him, let's go get baptized. And then later on in Acts chapter 19, as soon as those... Uh, disciples of John the Baptist who are Old Testament saints who become New Testament believers when they hear the gospel from Paul. Paul immediately says, well, what baptism were you baptized with? And they say, John's baptism. And so Paul says, well, let's get baptized in the name of the Father, uh, in the name of Jesus. And he takes them down and they are baptized again. This was symbolic of what happened at the instant of salvation when a believer is identified with the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. What the New Testament describes as the baptism by means of the Holy Spirit. Water baptism in the early church was a picture of positional truth, a picture, a visual aid. Just as earlier we had celebrated the Lord's table and we had the visual aid of the bread and the cup to picture the person and work of Christ in the 
church we have water baptism, which is a visual aid for understanding that abstract doctrine of a positional truth, the baptism by means of the Spirit, where the new believer at the instant of faith in Christ is identified with the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So what Jesus is summarizing here in this statement is has to do with what happens at salvation. Hearing the gospel, responding to the gospel, this focuses on what we would call the evangelism aspect of the mission of the church. And then the second uh, participle, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, and that's the second aspect of the mission, edification. So the main command is to make disciples, to make students, and then you have two participles of means, baptizing and teaching. You make disciples by baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's a summation of evangelism. And then by teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, that's a summary of edification. How do you make the students? First of all, you get them saved. Secondly, you teach them what the Word of God says. Basically simple. Evangelism and edification. That is the mission of the local church. Jesus restated it one last time before He ascended to heaven in Acts 1.8. He had the eleven assembled before Him and He said, But you will receive power... When the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and that would be just a few days afterward on the day of Pentecost. And he then commands, You shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, the province, the provinces that were just larger than Jerusalem, and even to the remotest part of the earth. And that verse, by the way, sets up your outline structure for the whole book of, of Acts. Because at the very beginning, in the first six or seven chapters, they're witnessing in Jerusalem. Then persecution arose, and they're scattered, and they go out into Judea and Samaria. We see uh, Philip going and witnessing to the Ethiopian eunuch, and then to Samaria. We see then, after that, uh, the Apostle Paul getting saved and his missionary journeys as he takes the gospel to the remotest part of the earth in the Roman Empire. This verse gives us that preview of what the book of Acts is all about. And the taking the gospel to the remotest part of the earth did not end in Acts 28. It goes on, and it continues today, and we're part of that tradition to continue to take the gospel to those who have never heard the gospel. And so a church, a healthy local church, as I pointed out last time, is going to have a vision related to the mission that God has given, the objective that God has given the every believer in the church age and the local church. And that is, first of all, evangelism. We are to have a heart and desire for evangelism, not only in terms of our own lives, but in terms of the training and preparation of men and women who can take the gospel to cross-cultural situations throughout the world. And that takes a a mental commitment to begin with. And and a local church needs to have that vision. Now, we're a young church, and we're just getting started, but I'm laying the groundwork here. We need to know where we're going as a local church because this needs to be a vital part of who we are in the years to come. So we have a mission, and we should be a missionary-minded congregation. 
We need to be involved in evangelism, but also edification, that desire to grow and mature in the Word, as we've been studying in Hebrews chapter 5 and chapter 6, that we have to have a, a vision for teaching not just the milk of the Word, but the meat of the Word, the real depth of the Word, the entire counsel of God that addresses everything in creation, not just salvation, not just our spiritual life, but how we as believers are to think in terms of divine viewpoint toward everything in life. That is the mission of the church. The church at Philadelphia was advancing in spiritual maturity. They kept Jesus' word. He said, you have kept my word. And you have to fit that within the whole framework of what Jesus taught. If you love me, you keep my commandments. This shows that they were a mature congregation. As we press on to maturity, we have to recognize our responsibilities in terms of our priesthood on the one hand and ambassadorship on the other hand. And this involves not just sitting here and learning the Word for our own spiritual life, but also taking that to have an impact in the world. That is part of our function, serving as salt and light in a fallen world. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank you for this opportunity to study study your word, to be challenged by the fact that you as a, a loving God have always exercised the grace initiative towards mankind and that in your plan from the fall of man you have also determined that you are using human beings, fallen human beings who are redeemed to be a part of this process, giving us that privilege of being used by you to communicate the gospel to others. Father, it is our prayer that you will give this church a, a vision for evangelism, for not just here, but also in terms of taking the gospel throughout the world. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning that's unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they would take this opportunity to make that sure and certain. Jesus Christ died on the cross for you. He paid the penalty for your sins. There is no sin that was left undealt with. There is no sin that you can commit that will cancel that salvation. Jesus Christ paid it all. All, you, all that is left for you to do is to trust in Him for your salvation. Scripture says, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. This is your opportunity to make that salvation sure and certain. At the instant that you put your faith alone in Christ, at that instant, God the Father in His omniscience knows what you're trusting in for salvation. At that instant, He imputes His righteousness to you, declares you justified, regenerates you, and gives you eternal life. And that can never be taken from you. Father, now we pray that you would challenge us with the things we've studied this morning. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.